teach us that we can do all those things and God's not going to condemn us. In fact, God wants to hear from us. So the summer is going to be not every single psalm because we don't have 150 weeks to go through the Psalter, but we're going to be traveling through the the different books of the Psalms. So this morning, what I want to do for you is I want to talk a little bit about the shape and structure of the book of Psalms, because it's not just a random collection of poems and songs and prayers. It was actually carefully put together to tell a story. And, And that story is the story of David. And as we know, because we've read the Gospel of Matthew, that the son of David is Jesus Christ, so that the story of the Psalter, the story of the book of Psalms, is actually the story of our Savior Jesus. And for those of us who have put our faith in him, it's our story as well, because when we are brought into union with Christ through faith, we now share in the sufferings, in the pain, in the anguish of Jesus, but we also share in the joy and the thanksgiving and the resurrection that is promised to us at the end of the age. So that's where we're headed. I'm really excited. We're going to be jumping all over the Psalms today, so bear with me. We're going to have some of the passages on the projector, but also feel free to follow along in your Bibles. But before we jump in, let me pray, and, um, and then we'll do our thing. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for how you love your people. Thank you that you love your people so much that you gave us the words to speak to you in times of pain, in times of trial, in times of struggle, and also in times of joy and thanksgiving. And, um, and we just thank you for that, Lord. And I pray this morning that as we travel through this massively important book that you would speak to our hearts, that you would convict us of sin, and that you would draw us near to yourself, Lord. We love you with all of our hearts, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so the book of Psalms, here we are. The book of Psalms, just a little bit of introduction. It's a collection of prayers, songs, and poetry that actually stretches over the period of about 800 years. But it wasn't stitched together in the format we have now until sometime during and or after the exile of Israel. In other words, God's people were outside of the promised land. They were under Babylonian rule. They were without Solomon's temple and they were longing for the glory days of Israel. The book tells the story of Israel through the eyes of King David about what David was always supposed to be, but he never actually attained. This book traces the story of David by highlighting God's calling upon his life, the turmoil he faced as God prepared him for the throne, the downfall of his dynasty, and finally the rising of the Davidic king who would rule upon his throne for all eternity. And it is in this story of David as he relates his pain, his suffering, his anguish to God's people that we are able to see ourselves who are living in exile under foreign rulers anticipating the day that the promises of God are finally fully realized. So, as we live our lives in this world surrounded by death, pain, addiction, political turmoil, anxiety, depression, division within our relationships, families, marriages. God gives us permission to cry out, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And 
And that's why I want to be in this book this summer. Because I guarantee you that as I read that list of, of horrible things, that every single one of us in this room says, yeah, that's me. At some point, that was me. And if it's not you, there's someone in your midst who's going through just that. And the beauty of the Psalms is that not only can we pray on behalf of ourselves and can we cry out to God on behalf of ourselves, but these were written to the community of faith so that now we can rejoice with those who rejoice and we can mourn with those who mourn. We can lament. That's a word we're going to be throwing around a lot over the next two months. We can lament with those who are in the midst of lamenting. And there's something to that, right? Those of you who have gone through horrific times, when, when someone is sitting with you in that and not even saying a word, there's something about that that brings us comfort. And if it's true that we are the body of Christ and that we are the ones who are manifesting the presence of God in the world today, then us sitting with our mourning brothers and sisters, our crying and weeping brothers and sisters, that is, as, that's, that is Jesus sitting with them. So that's where we're headed. This, that's where we're going. I'm really excited. We're going to start with Psalms 1 and 2 to kind of get our feet wet a little bit. And I'm not going to go too deep because um, Pete's going to preach on this in two weeks. So I don't want to steal all of his thunder, but I might steal a few things. Um, but you can repeat it because I might forget. But anyway, so the way the book of Psalms is structured is that it starts out with an introduction. Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction. And what Psalms 1 and 2 do is that it draws our attention to the tracks that the rest of the book runs on. So Psalm 1 is about the law of God, the Torah of God. And Psalm 2 is about the king. So let's read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor seats, sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, the Torah of Yahweh. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So what the Psalter is doing is it's showing us that, that the righteous one is one who who, who meditates on the law of God, who delights in the law of God. And so interesting is that if we go back in, in history to, to the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, and we go back to a chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, it tells us the type of man who should be king. And the type of man who should be king is one who meditates on the law of God. That's the kind of guy who needs to be king. And so from the beginning of Psalms, we see that Torah matters. The law of God matters. Obedience matters. And then we flip over to this next Psalm where it talks about the Lord, the reign of the Lord's anointed. And it reads like this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth each set themselves 
And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We should start hearing echoes of something that's going to happen much later on in history after this particular psalm was written. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Remember the promise of Abraham that the nations of the world would be blessed and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O king, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the book of Psalms starts out with the anointing of King David, the one who ought to be faithful to the law, anointed by God. And the rest of book one, see the book of Psalms is divided into five books, which again, that should remind us of the five books of the law of Torah. So five books. And this first book is all about the anointing of King David. And from Psalms 1 through 41, we see that David is king. But if you remember the story of David, when he's anointed, there's someone else on the throne and he travels through this time where Saul's on the throne. And what does David go through? He goes through turmoil. He goes through pain. He goes through frustration because he's being chased by Saul. He's being attacked and he's trying to be killed. Right? And I'm thinking in my head as I'm studying this week that this is the life of us who are in Christ. If we are truly following after Jesus, that we are in the midst of being pursued by the evil one. Right? Remember that the devil ro- ro- roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There's truth to that. Right? Our war is with powers and principalities and we are being pursued, whatever that might look like. And so right from jump, we see that the story of David starts looking like our story. Starts looking like what we go through in our lives if we try to please God. And that that book goes all the way from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41, where finally, David is delivered. David is delivered in Psalm 41. Just as we will be delivered in the end. And so we are going to track through for the rest of this morning. I'm going to try and, and not be too all over the place. But we are following this story of David and we are seeing that the story of David is our story. The next book in the Psalter, book two, um, starts with Psalm 42 and it goes all the way through Psalm 72, and this is where we see the reign of David sort of take place. The reign of David sort of take place. And, and, and as you read through this collection of psalms, you'll see that there's a worshipful longing in the heart of the psalmist. And the majority of the psalms in this particular book are written by David. They're written by David. We also see in Psalm 51 that we read a little bit of this morning that it hints at his inability to be the king 
that Torah, that law-saturated king that we all needed in the king of Israel. Mind you, he repents, but what he did in order to get to that place of repentance revealed his unfaithfulness, revealed his lack of, of obedience to Torah. And then finally, we get to Psalm 72, the last psalm in that particular book. And this psalm is a psalm of Solomon. Because after David came Solomon, and and what Israel was hoping for, and what they were promised, is that this was the guy who was going to take them to where they needed to be. Remember, they're reading all of this put together after the fact. They're in exile. They're reading through the book of the Psalms, and they're seeing, yeah, David, was he was great, but man, he really messed up. And man, like, I thought we were going to make it. I thought we had this opportunity. And then Solomon came, right? And if we remember anything about Solomon, he comes in and he, and he builds this magnificent temple. And it, and it matches the, the, the Garden of Eden. And we're thinking in our heads, like, oh, we're going to make it. We're going to be okay. Like, the people of God are excited. And it says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son in Psalm 72. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice, right? He's a king who cares for the poor. He cares for the needy. He cares for for justice and mercy. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. This guy sounds great. I want him as king. May they fear you for a while while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Saba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. This is the Abrahamic covenant coming to fruition. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. I'm going to skip down to verse 20. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And there's no accident that that is placed at the end of book two in the book of Psalms. Because that's precisely the story of Israel. David's dynasty seems as though it is completely over. Solomon starts off really good, and then it goes downhill from there. He breaks like every single verse that you see about what a good king should be in Deuteronomy 17. It says, don't acquire many chariots, and what does Solomon do? He acquires many chariots. Don't take wives from foreign lands. What does he do? He takes wives from foreign lands. It's like almost like point for point, Solomon is just kind of blowing it. And then we get to Psalm 73, which is at the center of the book of Psalms. And this is Israel's darkest hour. And as we read Psalm 73 this morning, I couldn't help but think like, wow, this really just kind of encapsulates the entire book of Psalms. It's like right here in front of us. It starts off, and even thinking that as I'm reading through it, it's like, man, how how many of us have experienced this? thinking that we're in the midst of something, we're trying to do what's right, we're trying to honor God, and we're looking around and all we see are people who are unfaithful, people who do not love God, people who are not living their lives in obedience, and they're just succeeding. 
Like life's going well for them and we're just frustrated. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This psalm draws our attention back to Psalm 1. The pure in heart, the righteous, the one who is obedient to the law of God. Right from jump, it draws us back. Again, remember, those two psalms are the tracks that this entire book runs on. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in Psalm 73 this morning. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Right, that little word for kind of tells us why his feet had almost slipped. Because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever looked around and been envious of those who had more than you had, whose life was going better than yours, and you thought like, well, what if I just kind of what if I just kind of give this whole thing up? Like, what am I really gaining from this whole, like, following Jesus thing? Has that ever crossed your mind? Like, it's, it crosses my mind, like, more often than I think it should. Because I look around and I'm like, man, it'd be nice not to have to worry about that. It'd be nice not to have to worry about, like, my motivations in a, in a particular context. It'd be nice not to have to worry about what it means to be obedient to God. Like, man, it would just be easier if I can just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And, and he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, which I got, I mean... <laughs> They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven, and their tongue struts through the earth. The psalmist is jealous of that. Notice what the psalmist is doing there. Their hearts overflow, they scoff. Uh, I lost my spot. Ah. <laughs> Prize their necklace, their eyes swell through fountains. They set their mouths against the heavens, verse 9, and their tongue struts through the earth. They set their mouths. There's a creation sort of thing happening there, right? Like in the beginning, God creates what? The heavens and the earth. And what do the, the lofty do, the proud? They set their hearts against creation itself. And the psalmist is jealous of that. Let's be honest here. We've been jealous of these people. We've struggled with this very thing. Therefore, verse 10, his people turn back to them and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Does God really know what's going on? Does God really know what's in my heart? Does God really know that I'm doing X, Y, and Z and you can fill in the blanks? Does he really know? And if he does, does he really care? Because if he cared, I feel like my life would be different. Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent because all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And then verse 15 happens. Right, Because he's in the midst of it, right? He's kneeling down before God. This is where that lament comes in. This is where that frustration comes in. He's kneeling down before God and he's saying, God, what is going on? Why me? Right? But the very act that he's engaging with God is in its of itself an act of faith. The fact that he's kneeling down before God and he's crying these things out to him is an act of faith. He's acknowledging he's not lost. He's frustrated. He's angry. Maybe full of anxiety. Maybe depressed as he looks around the world, as he looks at himself. And he says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus. If all those things I just said, if I actually clung to that and followed in that lane, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I think that's such a cool verse because I think of my kids and how important it is for us, not even as parents, but as a, as a body who has children in our midst, that as, as we live our lives and try to honor God, that there is a generation behind us watching us, aware of how we live our lives, and trying to figure out, is this thing real that they all talk about every Sunday, hopefully more often than that? Is this real? I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And then it shifts even more. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. See, in the sanctuary of God, there are certain things that take place. Sacrifices take place in the sanctuary of God. Death happens in the sanctuary of God. So you can imagine as he enters into the sanctuary of God, what is he seeing? He's seeing possibly a blood-stained altar. Possibly he's smelling the aroma of, of, a, of a decaying carcass or, or, or whatever the case may be. Possibly he's seeing flies kind of flying around the altar. And it's there where it clicks. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Because that entire life that exists above in those verses leading up to verse 15, what that leads to is the very thing he's looking at in the sanctuary of God. It leads to death. It leads to death. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered. When I was pricked in heart. I was brutish. I was animal-like and ignorant. I was a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Really important verse there, right? It doesn't say, but Solomon's temple is 
the strength of my heart, my portion forever. It doesn't say Jerusalem is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It doesn't say the promised land is my strength and my heart forever. Finally, the psalmist is starting to realize, and especially if we remember when this was put together, as people are reading through this book of Psalms, they're sitting in exile under foreign kings, under foreign rulers. They're thinking in their heads like, man, if only we can get back to the temple. If only we can get back to the promised land. If only we can be there, then we'll be close to to God. And then he says, no, 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 no. Guys, you're missing it. Those were pointing to something else. Those were foreshadowing something else. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is faithful. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. They are crying these things out in the midst of exile which means that it's not a temple that they needed to get to in order to be with God. They needed to just cry out in faith to God. And as we read this, a few thousand years later, the story persists. We don't need to be in the temple in a particular place, in a, in a, in a, in a certain position, but rather we need to just cry out to God. And I promise you, I promise you he is listening. There's a wonderful quote by um, a biblical scholar named Tremper Logman. He says, as we read the Psalms, we are entering into the sanctuary, the place where God meets men and women in a special way. Thus, the Psalms are a kind of literary sanctuary in the scripture, the place where God meets his people in a special way, where his people may address him with their praise and lament. That the the thing we need to hear as we're kind of marching through this book over the next two months is that God is listening. He's listening. And, and, And though you might not feel it, he's listening. He's present. He's with you. He's with us. And the beauty of the body of Christ, and and one thing that Deanna and I, my wife, have experienced just over this brief time of getting to know you all is that, man, like the hospitality that we've already been shown by you has just been so overwhelming and so encouraging. And, And I'm excited because we left a place that really loved us. Like, they really loved us, and, and I experienced the presence of God in that place as I gathered with those people. And the beauty of the body of Christ that, like, it doesn't just reside in North Brunswick, New Jersey. It's here in Tom's River. And that as we have been making our way into this community, that we are beginning to experience the presence of Jesus as we get to know all of you. And that's what God is calling us into. And as we, as we march through the book of Psalms over the next two months, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you all to, to be honest with one another, to, to shoulder one another's burdens, to bear one another's pain and suffering, because that's precisely what these, these poems and prayers and songs give us the language to do for one another. And it's precisely what it challenges us to do. And if we are the body of Christ, then it's just what we're going to do. And I'm excited to see how this book is going to transform us and how it's going to challenge our prayer lives and how it's going to challenge the way we interact with one another. We said this at the beginning. We can be honest with God because he can take it. The question I need us all to wrestle with, can we be honest with one another? Can we take that? Because that needs to be the case. 
because that is one of the primary means of grace that God is going to draw us near to himself as we are opening ourselves up to one another, challenging one another, and being able to hear instruction and and challenge from one another and shouldering one another's burdens and guilt and pain and suffering. We gotta be able to do that. We gotta be able to do that or else then what are we doing? Because it's got to be more than just hanging out on Sunday morning to hear maybe a couple of jokes. I didn't tell many yet, um, but I have some. That was one right there. <laughs> See? I got it. Book four are where things start to change. So picking up in Psalm 90 and 89, actually, both. We get to the next book of the Psalms. And in book four, we start with a prayer of Moses, which is really interesting, right? That's why the Psalter covers over about 800 to 1,000 years. But the way it was put together is so challenging and it's it's so beautiful, right? Because we're in the midst of darkness in book three. And you'll notice that. And I want to encourage you that as go through the Psalms this summer for you to be reading along with us. If you read about three Psalms a day, you can actually finish it um, in the next two months, but that might, that's a lot too, but maybe just spend time like in a few, like one Psalm a day and really meditate and chew on it, but you can make through, you can make it through a significant dent. Um, but anyway, book three was this just horrific time, right? It's the darkest hour of Israel, but then all of a sudden, Psalm 90 which is a prayer of Moses. And I'm not even going to read through the psalm because I just want to talk about like the placement of the psalm and what it's doing for the people of God. See, what the psalmists want to do, what the, the, the book of Psalm wants to do, it wants to remind God's people of where they come from. They were delivered from Egypt from under the thumb of Pharaoh, through Moses. Remember. Even Eric, when he was sharing about the Colorado trip, his challenge is that his kids would remember the mountaintop experience, right? Not that they would be grasping at it in the midst of the drudgery that is life, right? Because let's be honest, like there's specks of joy and beauty, but a lot of it's just like, gotta wake up, you gotta go to work, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. And then people die and then you gotta deal with that and it's hard and, and, and maybe finances are tight and it's hard and, and, and maybe the marriage is rocky and it's hard. But remember where you came from. For Israel, remember the Exodus. Remember what you have been delivered from. For us, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember where we had been birthed. That Jesus died and then three days later was resurrected to new life. And those of us who put our faith in him were risen with him on that day. Remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. That's what Psalm 90 is doing. And all of a sudden, what we begin to see is that no longer are we reading really Psalms of David anymore. There's a few kind of scattered throughout. But, but a common theme that begins, begins showing up is that the Lord reigns. Yahweh reigns. In Hebrew, it's called Yahweh Malak. 
right? That's a fun thing to say. Yahweh reigns. Yahweh is king. The Lord is king. Every time you see L-O-R-D and it's all capital letters, that's referring to the covenant name of God. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. No longer do we have to trust in this fallen human king, David and Solomon, because like, they really dropped the ball. The Lord reigns. And that goes on till about Psalm 106. And then we get to the last book of the Psalter. And that is book five, Psalms 107 through 150. And we're going to go through this very quickly because I don't want to be with you all too that long. I mean, you, know, you guys want to go out. You want to do something fun. And I can you know, drone on for whatever. Anyway, Psalm 107 to 150, we see a new type of David. Because David begins to reemerge in this last book of the Psalter. And I just want to read to you Psalm 110. It's so cool. It says, it's a Psalm of David. And it says, the Lord says to my Lord, again, Jesus quotes this in a conversation with the Sadducees and the Pharisees in, in Matthew. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. There's a different David right now. A much different David is beginning to show up in this context. Even in book four in Psalm 101, which we just left, but I just remembered it and I want to share it with you. In Psalm 101, it reads like this. I will sing of the steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when you, will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within your house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. That's a Psalm of David. We know he set before his eyes something that was worthless because he was sitting on a roof. He was chilling. He wasn't at war where he was supposed to be. And he saw a beautiful woman taking a bath before his eyes. And he said, I want that. So, it's confusing that David would say that because this isn't really David. We're not dealing with literal David now. We're dealing with the idea of David. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall not be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. There's only one who knew nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. It will look with favor on the faithful in the land they may dwell, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. We're dealing with a different David now. We're dealing with a different David. No longer are we dealing with literal King David, but we're dealing with one who's going to come in the line of David. 
And we know as we read Matthew chapter 1, we know who that one is. We know who it is that picks up David's mantle and takes it off into eternity. That it's Jesus Christ, the son of David, who reigns and is coming back to gather his church. We know who that is. And the beauty of the Psalter, that it starts in this deep pit of despair, where it ends up. Flip with me to Psalm 150, and then we will finish up shortly. But in Psalm 150, it reads like this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sounds. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything let everything that has breath praise the lord i'm going to read it again let everything that has breath praise the lord because where are we headed redeemer we're headed to the place where the entire earth will be filled with his glory so they're sitting there in exile and they get to the end of the psalter and finally oh I know where we're going. I know where we're going. And the promise of the Psalter is the promise of the entire Bible that one day everything that has breath will praise the Lord. The glory of God will cover the entire earth. All the nations will be brought in and will be seated at a wedding feast with Jesus for all of eternity. That's our hope. That's the hope of the book of Psalms. And what we have access to in this collection of Israel's prayers is, is, is the heart of God. And, and the heart of God is one who now that we live in the confusing in-between of Jesus' first coming and his second coming, that already not yet, where we experience the presence of God in the midst of his people and the Holy Spirit indwelling us and, and the salvation that we offer to the entire world, we still experience those, those, kind of, those kind of aftershocks of the death that has been crushed by Jesus because we still experience pain in this world. We still experience suffering in this world. We still experience relational brokenness, addiction, anxiety, depression, the things that we encounter day by day. We're going through them. And, and Christian, you are not guarded from that. In fact, Jesus tells you that if you're going to follow me, that's precisely what your life is going to be. And it's going to wreak havoc on you. But, but remember... That there's a day coming where everything that has breath will praise the Lord. And in Revelation chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. When it says the sea was no more, no more is there chaos in our path. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Finally, 
right? Finally, we're going to experience him in his fullness. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. But Redeemer, we are living in the midst of the former things. And if you are not experiencing the former things, then you need to actually go after the former things. You need to go after the pain in the world of those around you. Right? We can't guard ourselves from the pain, the suffering, from the storms that we encounter in this world. We can't run from them. In fact, we need to run toward them with the hope of the gospel. With the hope of the gospel. Redeemer, I'm so excited for where we're headed this summer. I don't know if you can see it on my face. I'm really excited. And I start to sweat when I'm, I start to sweat no matter what. It doesn't really matter. Um, but I'm excited because I really believe this stuff. I really truly believe that God is in our midst and that God is pushing us outward so that we might engage with the broken and that we might offer them a, a glimmer of the hope that one day, one day, it's not going to be like this. But let me, let me cry with you. Let me weep with you. Let me sit with you. Let me open up God's word with you. Let me just be with you. And Redeemer, I want to encourage you that Jesus is with us. He's here. He's in the midst of his people. And as we gather, that's where we begin to experience the fullness of Jesus and as we, as we come to the table this morning, I want us to remember that. As we take communion, I want us to remember that it was the brokenness of Jesus' body and the spilling out of his blood that brings us hope. But it also calls us to something. It calls us to the very same brokenness that Jesus encountered. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the beauty of this book, Lord. And I pray that as we travel through it this, this, this summer, Lord God, that you would challenge us, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, draw us nearer to yourself. Make us more and more like your son, Jesus, Father. We love you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.